G'day, we're reading from 2 Samuel chapter 17 verses 24 to 18 verse 18. If you need a paper Bible, strongly encouraged, put your hand up. I think Pat's up the back and, oh no, Debbie's already got some, lovely. Amazing, open it up to that, I'll give us a moment. Over here, Debbie. All right, let's get it. 2 Samuel chapter 17, starting at verse 24. David went to Mahanaim, and Absalom crossed the Jordan with all the men of Israel. Absalom had appointed Amasa over the army in place of Joab. Amasa was the son of a man named Jepha, an Israelite who had married Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, and sister of Zeruiah, the mother of Joab. The Israelites and Absalom camped in the land of Gilead. When David came to Mahanaim, Shobi son of Nahash from Rabbah of the Ammonites and Machir son of Amiel from Lodabar and Barzillai the Gileadite from Rogalim brought bedding and bowls and articles of pottery. They also brought wheat and barley, flour and roasted grain, beans and lentils, honey and curds, sheep and cheese from cow's milk, for David and his people to eat. For they said, the people have become hungry and tired and thirsty in the desert. David mustered the men who were with him and appointed over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. David sent the troops out, a third under the command of Joab, a third under Joab's brother Abishai, son of Zeruiah, and a third under Ittai the Gittite. The king told the troops, I myself will surely march out with you. But the men said, you must not go out. If we are forced to flee, they won't care about us. Even if half of us die, they won't care. But you are worth 10,000 of us. It would be better now for you to give us support from the city. The king answered, I will do whatever seems best to you. So the king stood beside the gate while all the men marched out in units of hundreds and of thousands. The king commanded Joab, Abishai and Ittai, be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. And all the troops heard the king giving orders concerning Absalom to each of the commanders. The army marched into the field to fight Israel and the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. There the army of Israel was defeated by David's men and the casualties that day were great, 20,000 men. The battle spread out over the whole countryside and the forest claimed more lives that day than the sword. Now Absalom happened to meet David's men. He was riding his mule, and as the mule went under the thick branches of a large oak, Absalom's head got caught in the tree. He was left hanging in midair, while the mule he was riding kept on going. When one of the men saw this, he told Joab, I just saw Absalom hanging in an oak tree. Joab said to the man who had told him this, What? You saw him? Why didn't you strike him to the ground right there? Then I would have had to give you ten shekels of silver and a warrior's belt. But the man replied, Even if a thousand shekels were weighed out into my hands, I would not lift my hand against the, against the king's son. In our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, Protect the young man Absalom for my sake. And if I had put my life in jeopardy and nothing is hidden from the king, you would have kept your distance from me. Joab said, I'm not going to wait like this for you. 
So he took three javelins in his hand and plunged them into Absalom's heart while Absalom was still alive in the oak tree. And ten of Joab's armor bearers surrounded Absalom, struck him and killed him. Then Joab sounded the trumpet and the troops stopped pursuing Israel for Joab halted them. They took Absalom, threw him into a big pit in the forest and piled up a large heap of rocks over him. Meanwhile, all the Israelites fled to their homes. During his lifetime, Absalom had taken a pillar and erected it in the King's Valley as a monument to himself, for he thought, I have no son to carry on the memory of my name. He named the pillar after himself, and it is called Absalom's Monument to this day. Good evening. Thank you, Alex, uh, for uh, reading that uh, fabulously, especially those, uh, those names. Yeah, absolutely nailed it. Uh, let's pray as we come to uh, this part of God's Word. Father God, please give us uh, insight into your Word. Please shape our hearts and our minds that we would know you better and that we would love you more and live your way. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Do I have control? I do. There you are. If you had to choose one, which would you choose? Love or justice? Now, perhaps it might depend whether or not we're on the receiving end of love or the receiving end of justice. Maybe if we've done, if we're in the wrong, perhaps we might choose to receive some, some love, some loving kindness rather than just condemnation. Whereas if we're on the other side, if we've been wronged, maybe we'd rather the justice be upheld and that we're not so much concerned with pursuing love or kindness. Uh, I think we can often see these two poles between love and justice. We, we see it in the world around us, in the media, in the popular culture, where, you know, on the one hand, we, we're called to respond to some people with love and acceptance and compassion, and, but for others, the supposedly right response can only, must, and must always be just condemnation. And, but on a, on a personal front, I think we see this as well. I mean, with those who are close to us, if you're married to your spouse or if you have children or parents or siblings, close friends. I mean, for example, those who have siblings, you know, what do you, what do, you do when your, your brother or your sister does you wrong? Do you pursue justice? Do you show love, mercy, grace? Do you, do you try to do both? Do you, do you kind of swing from one pole to the other? Can love and justice somehow be both achieved? If so, How? I think we often see this tension at work in our lives, in our relationships, uh, and we see it at work in t tonight's passage before us as we continue to trace the mess in David's house, in King David's house. Uh, his son Absalom has launched a full-scale rebellion against his father. He's attempted to become king in his place, and David's response to his son carries this, this same messy tension between love and justice. And I think as we read it, we, we feel this tension, we're drawn into it, but I, I hope that, we, that, that we're also pointed forward, that we see God's answer to that tension, and an answer that does impact and shape our lives and indeed our relationships. So look with me at this uh, next uh, section in 2 Samuel, uh, just to remind us, refresh us, or if you haven't been here to sort of set the scene. We saw last week that uh, David has escaped from the threat of Absalom, he's fled, from Jerusalem, he's escaped largely thanks to the shrewd advice of Hushai, who played to Absalom's ego and uh, managed to delay uh, his attack on David sufficiently enough that such that David and his men had time to escape to the other side of the Jordan River. 
And that's where we pick things up as we prepare for battle. Uh, verse 24, we hear that uh, David went to Mahanaim, which is a town, there's a map, um, uh, it's on the east side of the Jordan River. Now, Mahanaim literally means two camps, which is quite fitting because here we have the, the people of Israel divided into two camps. Firstly, there's, uh, there's with, with Absalom, it says, all the men of Israel. It sounds like the advice of Hushai has been taken here. All the men of, of Israel have been gathered and are being led out, led by ba Absalom into battle against David and his men. Absalom is in charge. And we're told that he appoints a new commander, a commander of his army in place of Joab. Joab had been the commander of David's army and he'd remained loyal to David. So Absalom now appoints Amasa, Amasa. And he was, uh, we're, we're told um, a bunch of things about, uh, about this guy. Um, he, I'll try and trace the logic of it in a, in a family tree. So here we go. He was the son of Jether, uh, who was an Ishmaelite, who had married Abigail, the daughter of Nahash. Okay, you with me so far? And uh, she, uh, Abigail was also the sister of Zeruiah, uh, the mother of Joab. Okay, so that makes Amasa and Joab Cousins, that's right, well done, you can read, I'm glad that it makes some sense. Now the most significant thing about this, this connection is that uh, Zeruiah, was, we're also told, was the sister of David. Now perhaps half-sister because we know that David's father was Jesse and so it seems they, had, they may have had different fathers, two fathers involved and um, maybe their, their half-brother's um, sister by the, the mother. Now all this means that David was... Sorry, Amasar was a nephew of David. And the significance of Amasar's relation to David will become uh, more, uh, will be seen in, in the coming weeks. But with that family tree clarified, hopefully, uh, the scene is set. Verse 26, the Israelites and Absalom camped in the land of Gilead. Here is one of the camps. Here are the people of Israel in rebellion against God's anointed king, camped with their rebel leader Absalom in the land of Gilead, along the edge of the Jordan River. That's one camp. The other camp is David and his men in Mahanaim. Verse 27 tells us that when David arrived in Mahanaim, he was met by three men, Shobi, Machir and Barzillai. Had interesting names and they made up an, an interesting collection uh, of supporters of David. We're told with, with great detail the support that they provided to David and his men. It says, verse 28, that they brought uh, bedding and bowls and articles of pottery. They also brought wheat and barley, flour and roasted grains, beans and lentils, honey and curds, sheep and cheese from cow's milk for David and his people to eat. For they said the people have become exhausted and hungry and thirsty in the wilderness. This is an abundant blessing for the exhausted, hungry, thirsty people of God in the wilderness. The Lord is providing abundantly for his needy people in the wilderness. Rings a bell, doesn't it, of the way the Lord provided abundantly for his needy people in the wilderness in the days of Moses. Well, David and his men, his armies have been refreshed. In chapter 18, he gathers the men, organises them into three divisions under three leaders, under Joab, his brother um, Abishai and, of course, 
it the git, or Ittai the Gittite. Now David intends to go out with them into battle. <clears throat> they persuade him not to. They persuade him to stay in the city. Now this, this wasn't um, unusual. Sometimes David went out to battle, sometimes he didn't. For example, 2 Samuel 10 describes two, two battles, one with Joab and Abishai leading, the other with David leading. But on this occasion, the, the wisdom of the men was for David to not go into battle since, well, he's the particular target of Absalom. David, as the rightful king, is far too valuable to endanger in that way. As they say, he is, um, he is worth 10,000 of them, they say. Now, their advice for David to stay back, it, it lines up with the good advice Ahithophel had given, um, Ahithophel had given to Absalom to just target David. But unlike Absalom, David listened to this advice. And so verse 4, we read halfway through, so the king stood beside the gate while all his men marched out in units of hundreds and thousands. No, don't think of fairy bread. You just sort of picture them with hundreds of thousands. Anyway. Um, there's David by the gate, sorry I'm distracting us, um, with his men marching out. Now as they, as they marched out, David gave the, the commanders... They're marching orders in full hearing of the troops. And here we see the tension between justice and love introduced. What will David say to his loyal troops as they valiantly go into battle on his behalf? We might expect a, an inspiring speech, perhaps something like this, uh, this clip from The Lord of the Rings. stuff isn't it Aragorn calls the men to fight to uphold justice to bring down the powers of evil we might expect David to, to likewise inspire his loyal troops as against all odds they go into battle against Absalom and all the armies all the men of Israel we might expect that instead verse 5 the king commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. And all the troops heard the king giving orders concerning Absalom to each of the commanders. Be gentle with the young man Absalom, the, the rebel who has white-handed the kingdom, who wants to kill David and make himself king. Be, be gentle with him. It, it kind of doesn't seem to fit, does it? Or does it? 
Because then again, Absalom is, is David's son. Despite all that he's done, David, David loves Absalom and he's, he's clinging to his love for him. Please be, be, be gentle with him, he says, as they go out to war against him. It's, it's somewhat jarring. Nonetheless, the men go. Verse 6 says, David's army marched out of the city to fight Israel and the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. Uh, firstly, we're then given a summary of the battle. Uh, verse 7 says, There Israel's troops were routed by David's men, and the casualties that day were great, 20,000 men. The battle spread out over the whole countryside, and the forest swallowed up more men that day than the sword. Despite the odds, David's men were victorious. And now as readers of 2 Samuel, we've been reading our way through, we're, kind of not, we're not surprised at this outcome. And this, this is the outworking of what we saw what we're told in last week's passage in that key verse in chapter 17 verse 14 where it says that uh, the Lord had determined to frustrate the good advice of Ahithophel in order to bring disaster on Absalom. The Lord is bringing disaster to this one who defied his anointed king. And notice the hand of the Lord in that, that comment that the forest swallowed up more men that day than the sword. This, this truly was the battle of the forest. Now, juvenile Jono, um, at this point, is, is kind of reminded of the, uh, the dreaded fire swamp in the Princess, Princess Bride movie, you know, where the forest devoured uh, more men than the sword. Um, there obviously was a dangerous, hazardous place for them to be. Um, oops, so there we got a little... Yeah, there we are, just to remind us. Um, <laughs> love to see. There's two great movies you can watch later. There you are. Um, it's curious, but this is the Lord's the Lord's sovereign hand in, in bringing about disaster on Absalom. This is God's judgment as he worked, as he was determined to bring Absalom to justice, even through the means of a dangerous forest, which is, as it turns out, pretty much exactly what happened. And so we, after the summary, we, we zoom into the key event that interests us, the downfall, or perhaps I should say the uplift, the uplift of Absalom. That was a joke, thanks. Um, and we're given quite a lot of detail here. Verse 9, here we go. Verse 9 says, Now Absalom happened to meet David's men. He was riding his mule, and as the mule went under the thick branches of a large oak, Absalom's hair got caught in the tree. He was left hanging in midair while the mule he was riding kept on going. Notice here, um, Absalom seems to be a royal mode of transport. Kind of making a point, look at me on my mule. He rides under a thick, uh, the thick branches of a large oak, um, perhaps looking behind him as he's escaping from David's men that he's just met. Uh, the NIV translation says his hair got caught in the tree. Literally, it says his head got caught. Maybe given the immensity of his voluminous hair, you, you can see why the trans translators might suggest that it was hair that got caught, but I don't know, maybe his head was somehow stuck between a fork in the branches or something. But whatever the case, he's left hanging midair, or literally it says, between heaven and earth, he's hanging there, awaiting his fate. What will become of him? We read verse 10. When one of the men saw what had happened, he told Joab, I just saw Absalom hanging in an oak tree. And Joab said to the man who told him this, what, you saw him? Why didn't you strike him to the ground right there? Then I'd have to give you a 10 shekels of silver and a warrior's belt. 
Joab can't believe that this man didn't strike Absalom down there and then on the spot, that he didn't become a, a war hero. The man defends himself, verse 12, uh, but the man replied, even if a thousand shekels were weighed out into my hands, I would not lay a hand on the king's son. In our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, protect the young man Absalom for my sake. He knows what David had said. He, he understood David's intent clearly, be gentle with the young man Absalom. He wasn't about to risk the king's wrath by putting the king's son to death. As he continues, verse 13, he, he says, And if I had put my life in jeopardy, and nothing's hidden from the king, you would have kept your distance from me. He knew Joab wouldn't stick up for him if he got on the wrong side of the king. What does Joab do? Well, true to his form as a man of action, he, he didn't have time for this. He says, verse 14, uh, Job said, I'm not going to wait like this for you. So he took three javelins in his hand and plunged them into Absalom's heart while Absalom was still alive in the oak tree. And 10 of Joab's armor bearers surrounded Absalom, struck him and killed him. Joab wasn't interested in being gentle with Absalom. He's not interested in a response of, of love. He's all for, for justice for this traitorous rebel. The point of having 10 of his armor-bearers to strike and kill Absalom, maybe it was to conceal which of them actually dealt the, 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 the death blow. At, at any rate, it was about the, the farthest thing you could get from David's command to be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. With Absalom dead, Joab halted the pursuit of, of uh, Israel. They buried Absalom in a hasty grave. They marked it marked it with a large heap of rocks, which stood as a reminder for anyone who would uh, re rebel against the king like Absalom did. And that pile of rocks, like that, the section finishes with another symbol of the demise of Absalom. Verse 18 says, During his lifetime, Absalom had taken a pillar and erected it in the king's valley as a monument to himself, for he thought, I have no son to carry on the memory of my name. He named the pillar after himself, and it is called Absalom's monument to this day. Absalom, despite his selfish ambition, his rebellion against the Lord's anointed, he didn't become king, and he's left with no lasting legacy other than a pillar that he erected for himself and a large heap of rocks. It's a pitiful end. I'll have to wait till next week to see David's response to Absalom's downfall. If you can't wait, just read on later after you, before you watch the Lord of the Rings and Princess Bride. Um, but what we have, to, what we have in, in today's passage, what I want us to see is this, this tension between love and justice. I mean, surely justice is what Absalom deserved. And yet David seems unable to pursue it. He, he, he clings to, to love for his son, and he, even as he sends his, his men into battle against him. I think we're meant to feel the unsatisfactory and unresolved tension between love and justice. I mean, is it right for Absalom to meet justice? Yes. Is it right for David to love his son? Yes. How can both love and justice be achieved? David is such a, a mixed character. These chapters um, in 2 Samuel really show us this, 
this mix, and we've seen that as we've, as we've read through him, and we, we see the depravity of his sin, his, his adultery, his murder. And we've seen the sincerity of his repentance when he's confronted by Nathan, the prophet. We, we've seen his grief at the mistreatment of his daughter Tamar, his grief at the slaughter of his son Amnon, but we've also seen his lack of action to, to uphold justice. We've seen his shrewdness to, to act wisely in response to the, the threat of Absalom, but also his reluctance to deal justly with the murderous intent of his son. David is a, is a mixed character. He's a, he's a flawed character. And yet the Lord chose him and continued to work through him to faithfully bring about his plans, plans to ultimately bring together perfect love and perfect justice through another king, one descended from David who, unlike David, had no flaw. One who perfectly upheld both love and justice. Ultimately, love and justice can only fully meet at the cross of God's King Jesus. Where justice is, is upheld as God deals justly with our sin against him by taking its punishment upon himself. Justice is done. And yet that's also the ultimate expression of love as the, the sinless Son of God died for us to bring us forgiveness and freedom and restoration and relationship with God as our loving Heavenly Father. It's through David's greater Son, Jesus, that perfect love and perfect justice meet. That transforms our, our relationship with God if we put our trust in Jesus which I'd expect most of us here have done that. Uh, we've put our trust in Jesus and been forgiven by him. But I, I want to say, if any of you haven't done that, if that's you, I want to urge you to, to look to Jesus to find perfect love, perfect justice. Acknowledge King Jesus, put your trust in him before it's too late. Don't continue in rebellion against him. That love and justice found in Jesus, that transforms our relationship with God. We are forgiven, we are at peace with Him. But what about our relationships with one another? This side of heaven, we, we don't see this, this perfect coming together of love and justice in, in, in all our relationships. We live in a fallen world and part of the fallenness of this world can mean that we, we do cling to, to love over and against justice like David did. Or perhaps we cling to justice over and against love, like the bloodthirsty Joab did. In just this past week, as I've reflected on this part of God's Word and, and this tension between love and justice, I, I've seen in my own heart, in my own responses to, to others, uh, to see it swing from, from harsh condemnation. I, mean, I haven't actually wanted to put three javelins through anyone, but, um, but I have found myself jumping to quickly to a position of judgment and and wanting to see just consequences dealt, dished out, and, but then swing through to, to a desire to just be passive and let things be, perhaps under the guise of love. I suspect I'm not alone in this struggle, this tension. And it's messy. Because unlike Jesus, none of us are perfect. Friends, the good news of the gospel is that, that the peace that we have with God can and does overflow into our relationships with one another. 
See, as we, as we repent of our sin against God, so that leads us to, to repent of our sin against others. As we are forgiven by God, as we find our, our true identity, our grounding in Him, so we can be enabled to, to hold out forgiveness to others who have wronged us. doesn't mean an, an abandoning of justice, there's still consequences for, for our sin in this world, but it does mean there can be great hope for our relationships because restoration with God can bring restoration with one another. As the love and justice found in heaven overflows to our relationships here on earth. And so the thing I want to take from this messy uh, passage with Absalom and his death, with David's struggle between love and justice, I just want to encourage us as we experience that tension in our lives, perhaps swing from those poles of love and justice ourselves, look to God's King, look to David's greatest son, See the perfect love and justice that's found in him and allow that reality to shape how we respond to and relate to one another. In the Lord's Prayer, we pray, your kingdom come. It's a prayer for the coming of perfect love and justice here on earth as it is in heaven. What a great thing to pray for and a great thing to seek to live out. Will you pray with me now? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for King Jesus, David's greatest son in whom is found perfect love and perfect justice. Father, forgive us our sin against you and against one another. Please strengthen us to look to Jesus. May his love and justice seen on the cross, may that shape our lives and our relationships to your glory, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.